This morning we're going to um, begin a series of messages that will focus on what I would consider the single most important truth that's taught and revealed throughout the Bible. And I realize that's quite a statement, but I think as we go through this series you'll begin to realize how true that really is. When we understand and when we begin to apply what we learn, it will free us from the chains and the shackles that tend to frustrate us um, from trying to live a religious lifestyle. There's nothing more depressing nor discouraging. There's, there's nothing that can tend to be more uh, restricting than trying to live a religious lifestyle. And uh, it tends to present a certain amount of hopelessness. You know, I just can't do this. I can't measure up. And there's a lot of truth to that. And the problem that we have with religion is trying to live up to all the rules and the regulations. And before you know it, we get defeated and discouraged. And we just want to give up and move in another direction. That's why I believe that this particular subject is the most important, single most important topics that, that we'll find in the Bible. For the last two and a half years, I've wanted to, to teach a series on this. Um, because of all the difficulties that uh, we have gone through, particularly at this church. I've prayed about it. I've studied many different books that were written on the subject. I've studied what the Bible teaches on it. But I never felt it was the appropriate time to do this. And um, as time went on, and I believe as, as we're better prepared since we've just gone through this series on knowing God, that once we understand and know God better, then, we have a, then we'll have a better foundation for understanding what exactly it is that God's trying to say to us. And so I kind of stuck it on the back burner for a while and thought, well, when the appropriate time comes, then we'll just dig into it and get rolling with it. And I, and I think that this is the appropriate time. You know, for the past uh, few years at this church, it's been very difficult. And at the center of all of it, if you come to think about it, and I'm sure that many of us have, has been an ongoing and a recurring accusation and that accusation is that there are many in this church, and I know this is true of other churches as well, that are not very gracious in their response to the needs of others. And, uh, you know, it came to the forefront a couple of years ago with uh, Pastor Hawking. It came to uh, the forefront in uh, the response to him, whether, whether it was perceived or imagined, whether it was real, whether it was genuine, whatever. Um, it was echoed throughout, I think, and, and was uh, really the, 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 uh, the focal point of a lot of the division that took place. There are many that left this church because they felt like the church wasn't gracious in their response towards him. Uh, it was a point of division in, in many cases. And I think that, you know, we need to be honest about these things and we need to take a look at them. And, uh, and as we do that, um, I think that as we look at what God has to say on this particular subject, it'll help, not, it'll help all of us with a better understanding of some of the more difficult things that occur in life. It's been said that the Board of Elders at our church has been less than gracious in their response to the needs of others. It's been said that they have been less than gracious in their response toward the complaints or the criticism as to how they handle the situation with, with Pastor David. And I think it's even been leveled against us by um, pastoral candidates such as John Vodder, if you recall, made several comments about the lack of graciousness that he and his wife felt as they were candidating for the pastoral position at this church. We saw that even in our own group where there were differences as to one's opinion of his candidacy. There were those who were in favor of him. There were those who were not. And uh, we were not very agreeable in our disagreeing with one another as to what we believed one way or the other. 
There are some that were angry with me because I didn't take a stand one way or the other, and I wasn't more vocal about whether I was for him or against him. So it put me in a real interesting position, so I upset everybody, actually. <laughs> and, and there were people that, that left this class because of that. And I understand that. And, and what I'm hoping to accomplish, and, and, and trust me when I say this, and I think that this is part of the timing of God, that I have no bitterness and I have no anger and nor resentment toward anyone in, in this church, in this class, uh, on the board of elders, or even those who have chosen to leave to go to other churches. Uh, what I'm hoping simply to accomplish by, by teaching this series is that if there's even the slightest sliver of truth to the allegation that we're not gracious people, that we have become legalistic, that we have become critical and judgmental of one another. My hope is that we would be open to allow God to deal with us as He deems fit. And as we learn about what truly is, if you get right down to it, it truly is amazing grace. And I hope as we go through this that we understand that and we can become more gracious people. You know, more and more Christians are, are starting to realize that man-made restrictions and legalistic regulations under which they've been living, you know, really don't come from the God of grace, <clears throat> but have been enforced by people who do not want others to be free in their Christian life. And I realize there's a certain sense of security and safety in trying to control the lives of others. If you're a parent, you can identify with this. The easiest thing in life, and sometimes we believe the most difficult time is when our children are, are you know, two years of age or one years of age or even younger than that where we have to change them and feed them and burp them and bathe them. And, you know, we're doing all this work and we think that's the most difficult time in being a parent. And now that we're not in that stage, Lynn and I personally, I'm here to tell you that it's really not. Um, you know, and I realize if you've got a small child at home, it's hard for you to believe. But trust me when I say this, the easiest thing sometimes for parents to do is to control their children. When you feel that you have a sense of control over their life, there's a certain sense of safety and a certain sense of security that goes along with that. It's like the day you wake up and realize that I no longer have control. And there's a certain amount of fear that goes along with that. But you know, it's true even in church. It's true of the, quote, religious community. It's true of people who want to control the lives of others because there's a certain sense of safety and security that comes along with that. And so I'm not trying to be critical or, or, or nor either condemning, but I'm trying to help us all to realize and understand that we have a desire, whether we want to admit it or not, we have a desire iner inherently to control one another because there's a certain sense of peace that comes in our own life if I know that you're controlled and contained and I know what the parameters are under which you will maintain so I don't have to worry about whether you're gonna step beyond that. See, but Jesus didn't come to control people. He came to set people free. They were the people that were controlling people that Jesus had the, the harshest and most severest condemnation towards. It was the religious folks, the, bureau, the, the bureaucracy of religion that he was most critical and condemning toward. The people who wanted to control the lives of other people. But see, Jesus came to set us free. Because it was the controlling religious people who were the ones that nailed him to the cross. There was no safety and security in what he taught and what he represented. Jesus was and always will be the greatest freedom fighter that ever walked the face of the earth. 
Now, freedom fighter seems like a, one of those oxymorons. Really, what he was was he was a slavery fighter. He was a leader of freedom. And if you've ever followed someone who was trying to lead that type of movement, there's nothing safe that comes along with it. Consider some history as far as just the whole subject and the topic of grace is concerned. You know, in the 16th century, when European, European reformers brandished the torch of freedom, and they marched throughout Europe, and they cried out that our salvation, our relationship with God was established through our faith by God's grace alone. And they said it was salvation by grace alone. It's all God, nothing of man. They were hated for it. They were persecuted for it. They were declared as heretics by the religious community that said, no, it's a list of rules and regulations. It's not a gift from God. You have to earn your way into the presence of God. They were hated for what they taught. You know, as you go through and you look at Great Britain and even into America and, and look at those who preceded all the great preachers of our day, John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards and George Whitefield and a hand of other risk-taking spokesmen for God, it was grace again that led the way. Grace was their battle charge. It was their theme. It was their cry. Salvation by grace, God's grace alone. Not by works, so none of us could ever boast before God. That was the theme. You know, and they were hated for what they said. They were heretics. They were persecuted. They were condemned. In many cases, they were excommunicated, thrown out of the religious establishment for what they held to be true as far as what the Bible taught. And you know, it's interesting, hindsight's always 20-20. And it was interesting that as, as we look back on history, there were many that said, you know what? That, that was the era of the Great Awakening, the Protestant Reformation. It was an era that issued in freedom for all who would choose to put their faith and trust in Christ. It was a great awakening, and I think maybe that's really what I'm hoping that will happen to each of us as we consider what God teaches in the subject of grace. And that would be that there'd be some type of an awakening of grace in every one of our lives. So that if it is true, if we are people who are critical and legalistic and judgmental, and we lack a certain love and compassion and let's say graciousness towards one another, that we would have God deal with us as he chooses to deal with us and make whatever changes are necessary so that we would be conformed into the image of his son. Let me change gears for a minute and ask you a question. Now, think through this with me for a moment and even look around. And this isn't probably the best day to ask this as we've been not just sprung forward, as we've been thrusted forward. And, and uh, you know, we lost an hour and I know this is tough because it's tough every week normally. So I know how difficult it is for all of you today. But let me ask you a question. How many of you have or know of someone that has a yes face? Okay, yes face versus no face. All right, that's what the two choices are. So how many of you think that you have a yes face? <laughs> I'll give you a little hint. <laughs> All right, now how many of you think that you know someone else that has a yes face? How many of you don't want to play this game? <laughs> ah, yeah, I hear you. All right, now this is going to go really good. All right. Hey, well, we're going to give it a shot. I'm not giving up here. All right. How many of you think that, how many of you had parents that had a yes face? There you go. There's a problem. The two people with yes faces had parents that had yes faces. How many think you even know what I'm talking about? What's a yes face? Anybody want to guess what a yes face is? Yeah, what do you think that it is, Janet? That's a yes face. 
A yes face, a positive face, uplifting. You see somebody coming, they walk in. Oh, well, yeah, I do. Now you go, well, you should have said that. Look at this. I just been saving it for a special reason. But, you know, when you walk in the door, it's like the whole room lights up. You know, one of those, I mean, I'm not talking about somebody, you know, just a, a, a yes face kind of person. If your parents were yes face, this was true then, you could approach them. You could communicate with them. You could tell them anything that, that was going on in your life and you didn't fear for how they would respond to it. See, a yes face is like a magnet, you know? It's like, you got a yes face, it's like a, come on and dump on me, that's okay, I like this. <laughs> that's what a, really, that's what a yes face is, right? Now, in, in, how many of you have, I mean, how many of you like the no face look better? It's like, you know what? I got enough problems on my own. Would you stay away from me? Look at his face. Would you even come and dare to tell me anything that's going on in your life? Because if you think you have problems, let me tell you something about problems. Right? See? Those are two, I mean, but they're only two kind of people. You're either a yes-faced person, you're a no-faced person. Now, sometimes you can be yes-faced, and sometimes you can be no-faced, and you know, and I'm not really yes-faced, but, but all the time, or I'm not really a no-faced all the time, I'm kind of like a no-faced person. You know what I mean? I'm like, like that. See, that, I mean, see, that's a problem that we have. You're either going to be yes face or you're going to be no face. Or you're going to be like no face, but not no face, no face. The other no face. You know, blank face. Thank you. Okay, yes, no, blank face. There we go. Or two face. Thank you very much for throwing that in there. <laughs> now, now we got one that we can all relate to. Everyone's going, oh, I can do that. All right, let me, let me tell you a story. Maybe this will help you understand the yes face, no face, uh, blank face, two face, all the options that we now have with the face that we got. Okay, when, when Thomas Jefferson was president, he was traveling across country on horseback. And they came to a bridge that was washed out because of a storm, and the river had overflowed its banks. And there was a traveler who was coming by, and he saw Thomas Jefferson and his party, and they would plunge in with their horses, and they would wade their horses across the swollen river, and they would go to the other side. And as, he stood, and as he stood and watched for a while, he realized he needed to get across, but he didn't know who he was going to choose to do so. So he went up to the president and, said, Mr. and he said, sir, would you take me across the river on your horse? And, and, and he said, sure. And he got on the back and he took the stranger across the river. And when he got to the other side, and as the president went back to the other side again, he was standing there with a bunch of people that had already been brought across. And they said to him, excuse me, sir, but why would you have chosen the president of the United States to carry you across the river on his horse? And the stranger was stunned by it because he didn't even realize that it was the president of the United States. He said, I didn't know that it was President Jefferson when I asked him to take me across the river. He said, well, then why did you choose to ride on his horse? He said, because as I stood on the banks of the shore and I watched those who were crossing, I saw as they began to start out that there were some whose faces said no and there were some whose faces said yes. And his was a yes face. And I like that. Because as he began to observe the people around him, there were some people that he wouldn't trust in a minute with, in this particular case, his life. And there were others he said, you know, I see something in this man's face then I'm willing to trust him with my life. As you think about that, and you think about the whole concept of the world around us and people around us, it really begins to make me wonder, as people look at me, do they see a yes-faced person, 
or a no-face person? Do they feel the confidence and the, and the encouragement to be able to come to me to share with me some of the most difficult things that may be going on in their life? And I think it really gets to the root of the issue because regretfully, not only this church, but churches in general are often filled with no-face people who are critical, who are bitter, who are doubtful, whose first response when someone approaches them is that it cannot be done. We've never done that before. I don't know, I need to look at the policy or the manual or the program or the guidelines that have been established before we know how to deal with the problems that you are having in your life. And the first thing that they sense in a world that is hurting in a world in need, the first thing that they sense about people who are supposed to care about them is that they've got no faces and the first response is, no, we're not going to help you until we check it out and make sure that it's okay to help you. And there's a problem with that. Now I'm going to ask you a question and you think about this. Do you think Jesus had a yes face or a no face? Do you think that Jesus was approachable? Do you think that Jesus showed compassion toward those who had a need in their life? Do you think that as people began to realize that they could come to him with their deepest, deepest and darkest secrets and the most intimate needs that they had, do you think for a moment that when he came to town they even hesitated to come to him? Jesus was a yes-faced person. And people came to him because they were drawn to him. He was like a magnet for people in need. And that magnet just drew them to himself. And they didn't hesitate to come to him. Why didn't Jesus ever get caught? I mean, because Jesus was, he was surrounded by no-face people. He was surrounded by religious people, rogue religious people that were righteous and law-quoting and professional. They were pious without. They were killers within. He called them whitewashed sepulcher. They were filthy, dirty within, but they looked good on the outside. They were no-faced men, and Jesus was not. And what I'm wondering, because here's what happens in my life, and I don't know if it's true of you, but think about this. The more negative people that you're around, the more negative and critical that you tend to become. The hardest thing to do is to elevate negative people out of that, that den or pit of despair that they constantly live in and to bring them up out of that. Jesus never got sucked into the pit of despair nor did he get sucked into the pit of gloom nor did he ever walk around with a no face. And I have to ask myself the question, why not? And if you've got your Bibles, look at the first chapter of the Gospel of John as John gives us some insight into this difference between Jesus and the men that were around him. John chapter 1. Now, as we look at this particular chapter, John introduces to the person of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by Him. Apart from Him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The Bible clearly tells us that Jesus Christ is the eternal God the creator of all the universe. And as we learned who made or who created the universe, we know that God did. 
And the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus created the universe and clearly teaches that He was God. And now it tells us that here it was that He came and it says, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. The purpose of light is to dispel darkness. The purpose of light is to show direction and truth and which way to go and which way to travel. And it says there was a man who was sent from God whose name was John, and he came for a witness that he may bear witness of the light. The purpose of John the Baptist from the beginning of time, he was ordained from God and he was sent to earth in order that he would point to Jesus Christ as the way to God. He would point to Jesus as the remedy for sin. He would point to Jesus as the only answer to the problems that man had had, has had between him and God. And he says, and the purpose of the witness was just to point to that man and say, hey, John the Baptist had a tremendous ministry. He had a great ministry. They traveled for hundreds of miles to come and listen to him preach in the desert. But there was one thing that he recognized that others who followed him did not recognize, and that was that he was not the light but he came to bear witness to the light. And so as Jesus came to him, he pointed to him and said, hey, this is the Son of God. This is the Savior of the world. My job was to help you to understand that in him is life. In him is light and truth. And so that's what John did. He said he was not the light, but he came that he would bear witness. And there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. It says, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not even know him. We did a series on knowing God. The truth of the matter is that many people do not know God. Jesus came, God himself took on human flesh and walked the face of the earth among a people, and they didn't even recognize that he was who he was. They didn't know him, and he came unto his own. The Jewish people, Jesus came to them, and they did not, and his own did not even receive him. But the good news is that not everybody rejected him. There were some, but as many as received him, to them he gave right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. And here we see grace being revealed for the first time. As we look at what does it take to have a right relationship with God, it was clearly evidence right here that it only took that they would believe in him. That was the message. That was God's first announcement of his grace in this particular passage. All you need to do is believe me. So to those who would believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but look what it says, but of God. You know, there isn't any person who says, by their will, I'm going to be right with God. I'm going to get right with God. I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to stop doing drugs. I'm going to stop running around. I'm going to marry and settle down, and I'm going to be a faithful guy, and I'm going to start giving money to charity, or I'm going to start working with the goodwill or the Salvation Army, or I, I know I need to change my life, and I'm going to do this. But you know what God says? That a relationship with God is not based on the will of man, that somehow we're going to do something that now makes us pleasing before God. It's not based on the will of man, and birth is not based on the will of man either. As you can see, he says, it's not based on, the, the, not on blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. You know, it's interesting, many of us, you know, we, we sit down sometimes and we contemplate, how many children are we going to have? Are we going to have one? Are we going to have two? Are we going to have three? As if somehow we can choose these things. And in many cases, God allows us to believe that we actually are choosing these things. Okay, I, we wanted two, and we wanted a boy and a girl, and that's what we got, and that's all we're going to have. And then we take care of that, make sure nothing else happens. But it's like, you know, that's our will. 
But you know what God says? You cannot, by your will, become a child of mine. You cannot sit down and say, now today, I'm going to become a child of God. Because it's not by your will, but look what it says, but of the will of God. You can't even know who Jesus is unless God reveals that truth to you. You can't even choose to say, I will accept him now as my Lord, or I believe that he died for me, or that I understand this. You can't even make that choice. You can't even make that decision unless the Spirit of God reveals that truth to you. If you remember, Jesus asked Peter once who all the people in the world were, were saying that he is. Hey, you know what? You're going around and you're hearing the rumors on the street. What's, hey, what's the buzz on the street? Who do people say that I am? And Peter said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, that you've, you know, come back from the dead. You're John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah. Others say that you're a great prophet. Others say this, that. I mean, there's a whole bunch of buzzing going on about who they think you are because they don't really know you. But Jesus looked at Peter and said, no, no, no. But who do you say that I am? And you know what he said? You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, you know what? That's really good. You're right. But you know what? Blessed are you, because man did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Do you understand how critical that is? It's not based on our will, but it's based on God's. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And look what he says. We beheld, we looked at, and we saw firsthand his glory. And it was glory as of the only begotten from the Father. And it was full of, listen, grace and truth. Jesus his life was full of grace. And I stopped and I go, you know what? Why wasn't there room in his life to be negative? Why wasn't there room in his life to become a no person? You know why? Because when you're full of grace, there's no room for anything else. If you're full, you're full. If the tank's filled up, there ain't no more room for anything else. Go to the gas station, fill up your car, and if it says full, all you're going to do is just spill all over the place because it's full and that's all it can take. Jesus was full of grace and he was full of truth and there was nothing else that was left for anything other than that. He goes on and he says, John bore witness of him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I for he existed before me. And it's a wonderful statement because John the Baptist was six months older chronologically than Jesus Christ. But he said, the one who's coming after me is even greater than me because he existed before me. Well, how did he exist before him if he was six months older? Because he knew who Jesus was, that he was the eternal God of the universe. Jesus said in John 8, 58, he said, you know what, even before Abraham existed, I am. And they knew what he was saying and they tried to kill him. It says, for all of his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. You know what it's saying? Grace upon grace. Go down to the beach sometime and watch the ocean and just watch the waves come in and hit the shore. What he's saying was, in Jesus, what we have is God's revelation of grace upon grace. It was the ocean. It was just the waves that kept coming in and crashing against the, the shore. Blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And I begin to realize, you know what? When you're full of grace, you can just keep giving it out and giving it out and giving it out and giving it out. And it never gets old. And it never stops. He said, we saw in Jesus grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Man, that's some good stuff. 
But then here's the contrast. In verse 17, it says, For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses. I like this. There's a contrast here. The law was given through Moses, and grace and truth through Jesus Christ. The law, the rules, the regulations, the requirements, the expectations, the Pharisees even lengthened the list because it wasn't like there was enough stuff that they had to obey, but they added some more stuff to it, and the religious leaders kept adding more and adding more and adding more. And it's like if you've had a religious background, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you've gone to a church and you say, well, where does it say that in the Bible? They say, well, you know what? It really doesn't matter what it says in the Bible because this is church tradition here at this church. I was watching the, uh, the NCAA games yesterday, and actually, I was watching the, the women's game in the morning, um, and I was trying, it was Georgia and Tennessee. And they made an announcement, or they made this special point about one of the gals who had gone into the game. And she went into the game, and she was wearing, it looked like a skirt. And they said, you probably noticed that she's wearing what looks like a skirt because her father is a pastor of such and such and such and such a type of church. And uh, the women at that church are not allowed to wear pants. So they had to make a special uniform to conform to the rules and the regulations of their church so that she was not in disobedience of these rules. So she wore like a skirt. You know, and I thought about that. And I thought, you know, isn't that just like man? It's like God hasn't told us enough stuff that we can find time to add stuff like that to it. And if you think about all the things that we begin to disagree about and all the things that cause division in the church and division among people, they're going to be, as we will find out, many things just like that. You're wearing a pants. My goodness. What's going to come in the world next? See, but that's what rules and regulations and all these things are all about. And what happens is that the list gets longer and longer and the possibility of even meeting these expectations are, are, are impossible. And so you had a whole bunch of people and Jesus saw them all. They were all turned off to religion. They were turned off to all the rules and they were turned off to the regulations and they were turned off to men who were trying to control their lives and tell them what to do all the time. They wanted something new. They wanted something fresh. They wanted to be free from all that frustration and the guilt. And there's nothing wrong with the law as God revealed it because what it did was it led people to realize that they can't get right before God because nobody can keep all the rules and the regulations. Galatians says that the purpose of the law, which was good in itself, was to lead people to Jesus Christ and to accept Him as God's gift saying, I know you cannot do it, so I have done it for you. All you need to do is receive this gift. But we struggle with the rules and the regulations. See, and as we go through it, we begin to realize, you know, we got a whole bunch of problems because grace will set us free. But the problem that we have is, what is it? I'll tell you what, all the reading that I've done, I, I, I mean, I walked away, so I had like a headache. It's like trying to understand and, and try to figure out, God, what are you trying to say? I mean, how do you explain this? Because, you know, Jesus never used the term. The Bible never defines the term. Grace. When I first became a Christian, grace. God's unmerited favor. You know, or whatever the definitions were that you learned. I mean, it was like, okay, let's define it. Let's put it so we can understand it. Let's make it easy. Let's give it one, two, three points, and we got grace nailed down. But that's not the way God is. He illustrates it over and over and over again throughout the Bible. He demonstrates it continually. 
but we can't just put it into one word definition. So what I want to try to do is give you some examples, like a word picture. The, the Hebrew term that's used for grace has to do with to bend or to stoop. That helps me to understand. It has to do with, you know, a word picture that helps me because, you know, I'm a guy and I need a word picture. All right. That's what they say. So anyway. But, but I do, I need a picture of it because it helps me understand. But when you take that word to, to bend or to stoop, and then, you, and then you try to put it into something that we understand, if you've ever seen a, a, a picture of royalty, if you've ever seen like, you know, the queen or a king or the prince or the princess or someone who is of royalty, and you see them walking around with the common people, and occasionally the royalty will stoop and they will bend, and they will touch the commoner, that is grace. That's a picture of grace. It'll help you understand just a, a little bit maybe of what grace is all about. There is nothing in the common person who deserved for that royalty to stop to talk with them, to ask them how they're doing, to caress them, to maybe hug them, to bless them. There was nothing that they deserved. It was a, it was a matter of choice on the part of royalty at that moment in time to stop and say, hey, you know what? I just want to bless your day. That's grace. There are many examples of it. The first example of it that I can think of in my life, and, uh, and, and it, it took place in the early 1960s. Let me give you a little story. Forbes Field. Forbes Field, 1964. The home of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Previously, before they played in Three River Stadium. The greatest right fielder that ever played the game of baseball was playing for the Pittsburgh Pirates. I was a wee tot of a man, a youngster at, at best, in the early 60s in Oak, Oakland, Cal Oakland, Pennsylvania, not California, Oakland, Pennsylvania. I had an aunt that loved baseball. She took me to the game. And after the game, we were kind of hanging out in the back where all the players come out. Roberto Clemente. Roberto Clemente was the greatest ball player that ever lived. He was a picture of grace, in my mind, a picture of grace and humility. He was a man of compassion, endearing soul. Couldn't speak a word of English. He was Puerto Rican. But he came out the back of Forbes Field, and he was coming out of the tunnel, and he was walking out of the street. And I had an opportunity to ask him for his autograph. And I was, like, so embarrassed, and I was so, like, you know, you know how it is. But I had an aunt that wasn't embarrassed about anything. In this case, it paid off. In many other cases, it did not. However, so she said, get his autograph. I went, no, I ain't going to get his autograph. And so she grabbed him by his arm. Ramon, can he have your autograph? I was like, I was like, and it was a, and the guy knelt down like that, and he took my popcorn holder. Hey, this is serious stuff. And he took my popcorn holder and he gave me his autograph and he looked at me and he smiled and he gave me one of those <laughs> noogies. But it wasn't a noogie, it was, it was, it was a love noogie. It was just a noogie. And, and it was like the most wonderful picture of grace to this day that I will ever remember. Still got the popcorn holder, still got the memory a gracious man, he didn't have to stop. He didn't have to, I mean, this is one, they hardly made any money. They didn't have to stop then. 
Just kidding. You know what I mean? But he didn't have to. But he did. See, I want you to stop and think about it. Think about some examples of grace. Think about an athlete. You knew this was coming, if you know anything about me. A well-coordinated athlete, it's the most gracious thing that you'll ever see on the face of the earth. A guy like Roberto Clemente out in the field, fielding, running, hitting, catching, throwing. Man, I'll tell you what, when you're good at something, it just, it, it, it just makes you a yes-faced person. It's just you're in awe of what you see. They just are so gifted. If you think about football, I can remember watching Lynn Swan, who played for the Pittsburgh Steelers, against the Dallas Cowboys in the Super Bowl. We see this highlight over and over again every time Super Bowl comes around. But you see Lynn Swan, he's running out to catch a pass. He's running full speed. I mean, he did the 40 and I don't know, four, six, four, five, something like that. He's running as fast as he can. The ball's being thrown as far as it can, as hard as it can. And he gets up, he jumps up in the air, and he's up probably about three feet off the ground. A guy hits him on the side, knocks him down as he's falling. And in midair, he reaches up and he catches the ball. And he brings it into his chest. What a beautiful sight. Oh, it was gorgeous. It was gorgeous. It was like, man, 55 yards downfield. Eric Dickerson. You ever see Eric Dickerson when he ran for the Rams? Man, he was huge. He was 220, 230. He was 6'2", 6'3", but he could run. He was a gazelle. He was, he was graceful. He could get away and he'd look at him and go, how in the world is he doing this? How does he, he bust through the line? He's down 90 yards later. He's in the end zone. And it's like effortless. He just drops the ball. He turns around and says, where is everybody? <laughs> it was graceful. We see in hockey, Wayne Gretzky is graceful on the ice. Stop, start, pass, skate, go, man, shoot, score, man. I mean, you can see, it's like, it's incredible. I mean, you go through all these Michael Jordan in basketball, when he's hanging from the free throw line, even the top of the key takes off and he's hanging it. And he's going, okay, take the picture for the poster. <laughs> Hurry up. I got to come down sometime. But we're not sure if he's ever going to. He's graceful. Man, I mean, we see it. Now, the dancer thing, ladies, I don't know. <laughs> I just thought I'd throw that in there. Just thought I'd throw it out for your benefit. <laughs> Couldn't even begin. Couldn't pull a dancer out of the hat. I don't know what to tell you. I, you all know. You know, the guys in the tights. You know what I'm talking about? I, hey, I, you know, I'm sure there's some gift there somewhere, but I don't know. I don't know. All righty. How, um, how about number two? <laughs> what? Oh, we're running out of time. I really would have spent much more time on the dancer thing. Huh? What? Oh, now, are we getting nasty with me now? Now, we're going to be gracious now. Now, be gracious, won't you, please? Oh, I understand. I understand. Okay, someone help her afterwards. All right. All right. How about, how about, I mean, a picture of grace. How about prayer at a mealtime? Is that like a, a gracious, you know, scene? I mean, isn't it the most wonderful thing to walk into a restaurant and see you know, the thing that excites me more than anything, I'm going to tell you right now, you know what excites me is to see a couple of guys having lunch and stopping to pray together. Don't see it very much, but when you do, man, I'll tell you what, there is a picture of grace. There's a picture of humility. There's a picture of submission before God. 
See, grace, that's really what it comes down to. It's a picture of humility, graciousness. We even say, who's saying grace? All right, I will. Great. How about good manners? Somebody just opening a door for someone. You know, just saying thank you and please. You know, think about these as, as pictures of grace or even well-chosen words. You know, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is edifying for the moment, that the person who hears it may, may be given grace in a time of need, Ephesians 4.29. Grace, building somebody up instead of tearing them down. You know, being able to, to, to lift people up instead of being critical and condemning and judgmental. You know, that's really the, the, you know, these are examples of grace. And I think that as we look at these, they're wonderful things. And if you've got some time, read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Do that this week, and we'll talk a little bit more about it the next time that we come. But read that and look at it, the picture of grace. And I love that as we see the Apostle Paul demonstrated in his own life what it meant to be gracious among people. You know, I, I'm convinced of this that we really don't need any more practice on being judgmental with one another. I think we all got it down pretty well. If we need practice in an area of our life, we need to practice being more gracious towards one another. I guess the longer that I live, the more I realize that there's two truths in life that I cannot escape. One is, we talked about that there is a God. And the second thing is, I'm beginning to realize that I'm not him. And I can't get away from that. And the longer I live and the more people I'm around and the more mistakes that they make and the more mistakes that I make, the more I realize that, you know what? I'm not God. And I thank God that I'm not God because God makes a provision for those mistakes. Let me give you five practical expectations. Kind of jumping ahead, but we'll come back to some of these other things that I hope that we gain from our time together. Number one, I hope that as we look at this series, we'll gain a greater appreciation for God's gifts, not only to you, but also to others. You know, one of the things that is most difficult about life is that we're all different. Look around. Only God could assemble such a cast of characters. We are all different. That's all there is to it. And the problem that we have is if we are not like one another, we don't like one another. And the simple truth of the matter is we're not going to be like one another because God didn't design it that way. He designed us all to be different. And we need to understand that and get that in our heads very quickly. Just because we don't agree with something doesn't mean that you can't like the person or like the other person. Just because we don't always agree about the same things doesn't mean we cannot be agreeable in our disagreements. See, and that's one of the things that really bothers me and it hurts me to see that. We're not going to agree on everything. We need to understand that. We disagree on a whole bunch of things. But those are the things that have been dividing this church and other churches for centuries. I like this kind of music. I like that kind of music. I don't like that kind of hair. I don't like this kind of hair. I don't like earrings. I like earrings. I don't like jewelry. I don't like this. I don't like that. I can't wear skirts. I can't wear dresses. I can't wear pants. I mean, those are the kind of things that are dividing churches all the time. You got to be dunked. You got to be sprinkled. You got to wash feet. You got to stay away from dirty feet. You know, it's like, what in the world? I mean, those are the things that are dividing people all the time. You gotta be, you gotta make so much money. You gotta be a certain race. You gotta be certain this. You gotta be certain that. And, and you know what? And all that is is it just it's just printing no face, no face, no face. 
That's what you're shouting out. I hope that we gain a greater appreciation for God's gifts, not only to me, but also to you and to others around us. And we begin to recognize that it shouldn't be a cause of division, but it should be one of our greatest strengths. The greatest strength, the greatest football team or basketball team or any sports team is a team that is diverse and different. Where everyone is good at what they do and they're excellent as a team and they come together and they overlook their differences for the purpose of accomplishing a common goal. You can't have all linemen on a team. You can't have all running backs on a team. You can't have all quarterbacks on a team. You can't have all wide receivers on a team or linebackers. You've got to have a mix of people that are different. They're different size-wise. They're different mentality-wise. They're different in everything. But you know what? They get together and they get the job done, and that's the church. We are different. Don't fight the differences. Enjoy the differences. Thank God for the differences. Can you imagine if we were all the same? Because we'll all be saying like the Number two, spend less time I think as we go through this We'll spend less time being critical of one another And we'll spend less time being critical of each other's choices It amazes me We rip people apart because of what they do with their free time Where they go on vacation Where they spend their money What car that they buy What jobs that they have if their kids are playing sports, if they're not playing sports, if they're in the choir, if they're not in the choir, if they come to service, if they don't come to service, if they're there Sundays, if they're not there Sundays, if they're there Wednesday, if they're not there Wednesday, if they were in a shepherd group, if they're not in a shepherd group. Come on, come on, come on, come on. You know, it's like we got to find some way to be critical. Man, we need to spend a lot less energy being critical of one another and a lot more time just allowing one another to make choices that we have the freedom to choose. And I think that as we do that, we'll become more tolerant, we'll become more forgiving, we'll become less judgmental. And you know what will happen when we do that? We'll develop yes faces. We really will. We'll be yes faced people. If no one else at this church is yes faced, I hope every one of us becomes yes faced. I hope every person that comes to this church, visits this church, sees people walking around outside this classroom, they see yes faces and they're just attracted to find out what in the world's going on over here. They got all these people with yes faces. But they won't even know that we got yes faces. But for a while, what I'm thinking about doing is we're going to have a little, little thing, badges. I'm a yes face. You know? And then what you have to do is if you're wearing it, I'm a yes face, you're going to have to wear a yes face. You know what I'm saying? It's like if you're going to wear you know, a fish sticker on your car, then act like it, live like it. If you're going to be cutting people off, flipping them off on the freeway, I say, you know, get the fish sticker off of there. <laughs> you know? It's just... It just something doesn't work about that. You know what I mean? It just doesn't work. I don't understand it. Or, you know what? I say put it on your window so you can just kind of move it up and down, whatever you're feeling like. Yeah, I'm feeling a little bit like this today. All right, then there goes that fish sticker. And the last thing is, you know what will happen? We're going to all grow up. We're going to all grow up. I'll tell you what. You know what? I've, I've gone through. I love sports. You figured it out. I'm still, I'm still trying to, I'm still allowing God to work with me on the dancing thing, okay? You know, but, but I love sports. And, and one thing I've learned from sports, you know, and I, I've, gone, I've gone with my son all the way from t-ball all the way up to seniors, right? And it's like, all, as you progress in sports, you go from t-ball to, you know, watching the kids chase rabbits, you know, to, hey, would you leave the rabbits alone? I'm trying to teach you here a double steal, you know? And they're like... Well, we like rabbits. Okay, you know, and to putting the tee on there, to making them hit off the tee, you move up, and then all of a sudden the coaches are pitching, and then the, and then the, and then the uh, you know the, the kids can start to pitch, 
and then you move up to the next level and then they can start to, you know, they can lead off if, if the ball gets past the catcher, you know, and, and uh, they can steal if the ball gets past the catcher. And, then you, and they're learning as they grow, you know, step by step. And then finally you get to the point where you can lead off, you can steal, you can call signs, you can have picks, you can do all kinds of stuff. And it's so much fun because you've got this trapped up here for four years. You haven't been able to use any of it. And now you're at a point where these kids are ready, man. I mean, they're ready to learn it. And then you move up to the next level and to the next level. And I mean, it's, and it's like, then it's real baseball. And then when you, when, you, when you go through all of that and you're there, you know what? The hardest thing in the world to do is to go from there, and now it's high school and college and professionals, to go from there to say, okay, now I'm going to go back over here and I'm going to start teaching t-ball lessons again. Man, you know how hard that is? You know how hard it is to, to go and watch a football game, a professional football game? And then to have the privilege of standing on a sideline or playing professional football or being in camp and do that. You know how hard it is to be able to stand. I mean, once you've tasted that, everything else starts paling in comparison. Once you've stood in the middle of the field and, and you got 55,000 people in Fulton County Stadium in Atlanta, the Falcons are playing the Falcons are standing out there. And I got those stupid tomahawk things. And they're all going, oh, and they got 55,000 of them just doing it. And you're there in the middle and you know they can't stand you. And they want to beat you. And they want to do everything they can to beat you. And you're there and you sense all that. And you're there in the excitement that surrounds you. And you know what? It's so hard to go back to, I'm just going to watch a Pop Warner game. Football's football, but it's not the same. It's not the same level. It's not the same excitement. And you know what? What I'm trying to get across to you is this. I think that once we taste God's grace, once we see what God really intended for our lives, once we taste freedom and we know what it means to live in a joyful, a joyful existence, we know what it means not to live with guilt and frustration and criticism and bitterness and anger and envy and all the rest of that. Once we understand what God's plan is, it's like experience the highest level of anything that you can experience in your life. I really believe that once you're there, you're never going to want to go back. I hope we never want to go back because I'm looking forward to where he's taking us. Let's pray. Father, we're just grateful for this opportunity to begin to study something that, uh, frankly, this world doesn't demonstrate in very many ways, and that is your grace. God, you're so gracious and so compassionate. We've learned so much about you that you know all things, and yet even knowing those things, that you still deal with us gently and kindly and compassionately. God, I just pray that as each one of us wants to become more like you, and as we pursue a godliness that only you can give us, that we will not forget our humanity and the humanity of those around us. God, help us to become gracious people. Help us to become yes-faced people. To be pictures of grace in a world where there isn't much to be like all the illustrations and the word pictures that we saw, that others, as they look at our life, will just kind of drop their jaw in awe and smile. God, may we become that so that you can use us to make a difference in this world. And we just ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.